2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. We're off this week and next week for the holidays, but we're playing some favorite old episodes. Here's one I taped in 2013 with Evan Wright. If you want to send a holiday gift to the show, go on iTunes, rate it, review it. It counts. Here's me and Evan Wright from, uh, I think, November 2013. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-hosts Evan Ratliff from The Atavist and Max Linsky from Long Form. Hey, guys. How you doing, guys? Good morning. Got in a little late today. It's not a. It's not a rare. It's not a rare occurrence. Uh, <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I, I am. He is. Aaron, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I spoke to Evan Wright, uh, who's probably best known for the book. Generation Kill, which became the actually the series of articles in Rolling Stone, Generation Kill, which became the book Generation Kill, which became the David Simon miniseries Generation Kill, which I think is sort of uh, criminally underwatched. I mean, have you guys seen it? Nope. Some of it. <laughs> you guys are some straight criminals. It's really excellent. <laughs> I have listened to this interview, though, and uh, this guy is chock full of stories. This man may have one of the deepest story wells uh, of anyone we've had on this show. Yeah, it was awesome. Every yeah, time like I didn't think uh, a story could top itself, it just did. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's, 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 had some, uh, he's lived his days. Uh, I think we got some sponsors this week. Who are they? Uh, one of our supporters this week is the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at NYU, the program in literary re- reportage. Uh, they're good people, and we thank them. Also sponsoring this week is HostGator. It's the best place to get a website. They offer premium web hosting at low costs. Uh, you guys, we have a third sponsor. I found this thing this week. It's amazing. It's a way to send a simple but elegant email newsletter. It's called Tiny Letter. Don't believe it. I don't believe it. Is that from the good people at MailChimp? It is. It is. You guys should really check it out. Here's Evan, not Radliff, and Aaron. Welcome, Evan Wright. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Short notice, I, uh, I emailed you a couple months ago, and I believe your response was, yes. I'll be in New York at some point soon, waiting for someone to come back from Afghanistan. Yes, that's exactly correct. And my response was, wow, I'm like, I'm waiting to see if the grilled cheese truck uh, is in front of the office today. 
So uh, you're, you're leading a somewhat more colorful life. Who is in Afghanistan and what were you waiting for? Uh, actually, it was Roman Gavris, a director, and we've written a script set in Afghanistan and he was doing some location scouting. Can one go to Afghanistan like as a location scouting tourist? It is the easiest country to get into. Really? They'll, they'll, they want people to come. In fact, to anybody listening to this, you should just go to Afghanistan <laughs> now. Like, they, they'd be welcoming you. Have you been to Afghanistan? Yes. What, uh, can you tell us anything about the, the project, or is it uh, uh, under deep, <clears throat> deep uh, secrets? Uh, it's basically, the genesis was uh, about a, a drug-addicted Blackwater contractor um, who is sort of lost in Afghanistan, can't return home because his life is is not good here. So, and he gets thrown into prison and has to break out with an Afghan dude and they have a wild adventure. Wow. That was, I thought there was absolutely no chance that you were going to answer that question and you both answered it and I like the answer. So is this a story that is based on any original, like uh, non-fictional research or? Well, I've taken a lot of drugs myself um, <laughs> at times in my life. And, uh, but it's, it's actually based on I wrote um, Generation Kill was a book on Marines in Iraq, and I did some other reporting in the Middle East, and I found that the military guys, when they return home, a lot of them get drug problems. Let's, let's, um, let's rewind a bit and talk about how you started off as a writer. Um, I know that you uh, spent some, some of your teenage years in a, a boys' school of some kind. Is that correct? Yes. What... Um, how did you end up there, and how did you get from there to being a writer? Well, I don't think <laughs> that um, attending a boys' school is an impediment <laughs> to writing. But yeah, uh, there, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, and, outside of it, and there was a period when I was sent to a boys' prep school, and I was actually thrown out of that for dealing marijuana cigarettes to my classmates in seventh grade, and. The marijuana cigarettes actually contained catnip, and some of the kids thought that they were high. And I've been there. Yes. Um, and they they reported me. There were some incidents, and I was I was then sent to what was not the the boys' school, but a, a place to straighten out bad kids. And so that's probably actually what you were referring to. Yes. Yes. And, um, there's there's a listing that you uh, there's a listing saying that a book about it is coming out in summer 2010, uh, which I'm guessing must have changed at some point. It depends on your time zone, but um, <laughs> there is a book coming out. In fact, okay. I'm wrapping that up this year. For, oh, okay. Um, Putnam now part of Random. House. What's what's the book going to be called? The Seed. Oh, okay. Check that out. If you're um, if you're listening in the future uh, on the podcast archive, check out the seed. It, it, it's already come out, so they'll yes, um, they'll know about I it. I hear it's been getting great reviews. Oh, it, amazing! Yeah. Um, so, what I mean, what was in in a, in a shorter than book context? What was that experience like for you? <laughs> well, it was like <laughs> Abu Ghraib for kids. They used it was extreme behavior modification, and they used uh, punishment abuse. Uh, and they were trying to get us to reject all of the the culture. In my case, it was like punk rock. The older kids, it was like the 60s generation stuff. Yeah. So it, it was a bad place, and it was completely insane. We were, the only thing that appealed to me is they taught, now I didn't buy in, I, the, I escaped and I resisted and all these things happened, but 
um, what did appeal to me about the program was that they were turning us into what they called a new race of humans, uh, homo superior, and <laughs> that there was going to be nuclear Armageddon. And the thing that I liked is we were going to repopulate the earth. And that part of it to, I was 13 when I was sent there, that seemed pretty cool. I often, um, reporters I talk to who, who've been in sort of intense immersion experiences, I ask them uh, what it was like doing that for the first time, but it sounds like you had a fairly intense experience already under your belt by your teenage years to, after doing this. Yeah, and it was very formative because um, I could see kids coming into it, and I was always amazed that most kids, and I'm talking like 17 to 18, I was younger, they would they would kind of fold and go along with it within two or three days. And I was thinking like, man, we're supposed to be rebelling, you guys. And so <laughs> it was very dis demoralizing when I would see these kids come in and then go along with it. And <clears throat> so uh, when I got out of it, it made me very much distrust social groups because I started to see that in my perception that people always formed along these lines and you you couldn't really trust what identity they were presenting so you so you get out of out of this pretty horrific situation and you go to college what what was your first writing gig out of college uh well um have you ever seen the king of comedy yeah uh what's the guy's name that the de niro plays oh, he lives man. like in his parents uh doing his comedy routine in the basement I'm, Ru I'm uh, Rupert Pupkin. Yes. So I got out of college and had studied medieval history and thought, believed somewhere I took a writing course in college. I thought this was in the eighties that you could make a living as a short story writer. So I would, I got out, I had different jobs and I was writing short stories and sending them to the New Yorker and I would get like at my second story, I got this like long letter from an editor at the New Yorker. And I was like, holy shit. Can I swear in this? Thing? Oh, it's encouraged. Okay. okay. So I was like, oh, I read like, you know, who John Cheever or somebody sent that this is how you get in. Like I'm yeah. on the path. I send the next story. The letter's a little shorter. What what was this? What was the long letter? What was in it? It was like an editor's letter saying this shows a lot of potential. You should do X, Y, Z. And, you know, please send your next work. I was ecstatic. And then after the like two years, I just finally got like a little card that said like the standard rejection <laughs> card. So uh, there was several years where I was just writing, um, you know, on my own. And uh, then uh, I, I wrote for some small publications, like really small in the 90s. And then I got this job at Hustler. How did you get a job at Hustler? Uh well, I was temping at a law firm, and a friend of mine heard about a job opening as a copy editor, and I gave him a resume, and it had a bunch of typos on it. And so they're like, you can't do a, a copy editing job, so we'll make you the um, the head porn film, review, adult film reviewer. And so that's how I started. Were you thinking, wow, this is a lark, I'm reviewing adult films, or were you thinking this is a good platform for me to build a career on? Well, actually, during my job interview, I um, overdosed on Xanax and went into this, like, blackout. I don't know, if, like, what exactly was going on. I have no memory after the first five minutes of my job interview, so I had to, um, 
I called the guy that interviewed me the next day and I had to pretend like, um, Hey, that was really good yesterday. And he was like, yeah, why are you calling? And I was like, I just, you know, wanted to thank you. And he's like, well, you're starting on Monday. And I was like, yeah, right. Okay. See you. So, um, I hadn't, didn't think it out. So once you, once you, uh, I'm assuming this was a fairly novel experience to you for the first year, say, did you think, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make a go of it in, in the porn game. Or were you thinking about bigger, bigger things? No, I, I don't mean in the, I don't mean literally in the porn, in the porn reviewing game. No, there was no place to go really. Um, because I was at the apex. I mean, yeah. hustler was the thing and our rating system was the, it was four penis icons and, uh, to- fully erect was the highest rating and totally limp was the lowest. And my first week on the job, I get this, my phone rings and it's like, Evan Wright, I hear you're the new, uh, entertainment editor hustler. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, this is pussy man who <laughs> pussy man made a series of films. David Christopher, I think was his real name. And he said, uh, how can I get, I just want to know one thing. How can I get your fully erect? And, um, <laughs> No one had ever asked me that, really, in that way. So it was immediately an interesting job, but I was also depressed. I could All I could think about were all those rejection slips from The New Yorker, and here I am at Hustler. So while you were doing this, you've later written about uh, cultures like, like the porn industry, sort of small, insular communities with their own rituals, subcultures, for lack of a better word. Was there a tension between playing it quote unquote straight and writing about this more from a journalist's perspective or I guess a journalist journalist I'm putting quotation marks around both of those uh yeah yeah I mean I was a huge fan of a writer still am named AJ Liebling who wrote for the New Yorker uh and you know he wrote about like street people like hustlers and con artists and acrobats and and actually exotic dancers which was sort of a code for like women that were like the 30s equivalent of porn stars in a way. And so he was such a fine writer that I did feel when I was there, like this is really cool that I'm in this world that I couldn't really get into any other way. And so I kept, uh, you know, journals of, of my daily interactions. And I wrote about it a little bit in a, in a, um, a story that's in the LA Weekly and, and also in my book, Hellenation, a different version. How did you make that jump from, from Hustler to, to LA Weekly? Um, ah, man, I just like, uh, it was really the first mainstream publication was Rolling Stone. Uh, I, they got, they, they let me do some tiny little items and then I went to the LA weekly and, you know, uh, people would just, because I worked at Hustler, they would take my calls and yeah. then they wouldn't give me a job, but I eventually convinced them to do that. What was the first feature you, you pitched to, to Rolling Stone? Oh, well, you know what? It's, it was actually there's Premier Movie Magazine, and I pitched them a feature on the porn industry as like an alternate version of Hollywood. And the editor at the time, a man named Glenn Kenny, he remembers this story differently. So, uh, But I recall pitching them this story, and it was going to be assigned, and I was waiting for the contract, and then Glenn called me, and he said, um, oh, David Foster Wallace is going to do the same story, so you're not doing it. And so I ended up uh, befriending David Foster Wallace during when he wrote the story on the industry that I was going to do, but I took him around the industry. And uh, I think it's published in his book, um, 
It's in Consider the Lobster, I think. Yeah, yeah it's called Big Red Sun, yeah. I think. It yeah. was published under a different title. That's it. It's online. It'll, it'll be in the show notes if people want to check it out. I'm a character in that. I'm Harold Hecuba in his ah. story. And um, why, were you, um, uh, why, why were you not under your real name? He did the whole thing under fake. He did it. He when he published it, it he didn't use his own name because he. It was sort of like his like meta thing. Like, well, the porn industry uses pseudonyms, so I'll do the same thing in this. Um, so, when I met him, uh, we became very good friends for a period of time, and and this almost has nothing to do with um, publishing my first story, except that I when I first heard about the guy, I fucking hated him because. <laughs> I, it's so funny, like those years at Hustler, I was so out of like the mainstream that when they said David Foster Wallace is going to do this story, I was like, who the fuck is David Foster Wallace? <laughs> what kind of pretentious douchebag has like three names? This is like Mr. Howell, you know? And, and, uh, and then that night I was having coffee with a friend. And he was holding a book. He's like, you got to read this book. This guy's great. And it was a David Foster Wallace book. And I was like, who is this motherfucker? I took the book and I was reading it. I was like, wow, he's, he's okay. And um, so I, I actually contacted Premier and I said, if, if he needs any help, I will give him access to my contacts. So what was it like you having never published a major yeah. feature, but starting to having those ambitions and you're um sort of a hired tour guide to a famous guy a surging a surging uh, young author about your age macarthur grant genius <laughs> guy yeah it was weird because um he he and i um became good friends very quickly and so you would think it was a formula to like continue hating him or to i don't know have a complicated relationship but what i learned from him is that he was very generous with me like his encouragement now after his his uh uh, uh daniel max published a book about him yeah and we were talking and daniel kind of said well he was probably friendly to you because you weren't like a threat because you were like, <laughs> such a loser so he you know but to other like real writers he would have been more competitive but he was super nice so what was it like watching him report that story? It was interesting because uh, he actually kind of sat in a corner with um, his pad of paper and did a lot of writing. And he said that he, I hadn't thought of this concept. He, he would try to like come up with some paragraphs and sentences in the moment. And I had always done, I'd already done some of my reporting, like real reporting. I'd never thought of that. I always do like notes and just interviews so and we were only in las vegas for a few days and i thought oh there's no way he's going to really capture this but he really nailed the industry did he ask you a lot of questions about it or oh yeah yeah (laughs) and he um he 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 quoted some of my work in his piece like my porn work so i was really flattered like wow the macarthur grant guy is quoting my work from hustler (laughs) Or some, it was actually something else. But. And what what kind of stories did did you start pursuing once once you had this sort of nod from Rolling Stone? So uh, very quickly, you know, I just went into crime stories was a thing that I did, and um, oddball stories. I didn't do a lot of music, um, but like female boxers, I did a profile of a female boxer. Yeah, um, murders and um, <clears throat> and uh, the anarchists, you know the 
on the road, smashing yeah. things, that kind of stuff. The the work from this period is is mostly collected in in uh, Hella Hella Nation, your your book, um, and. Uh, I think sort of subculture as a title for for that collection is maybe limiting, but there, it does seem to be sort of a thread. So in the case of something like that, the piece on on the anarchist um, collective, when you choose to do a piece like that where you're very clearly doing sort of what David Foster Wallace did for porn, pushing into a uncharted subculture and and trying to capture it in a limited um, span of time. How do you choose? Like, how do you choose what group of anarchists to go hang out with? And, and, and then once you're there, how do you choose, like, this guy is going to be the kind of central character in a story like that? Oh, well, I just would, um, you know, it's all about access and time. So whoever would, I would just hang out. And I have did this with the military. I've done it with, like, when there's a crime story and there's yeah. a lot of reporters you just like lurk around and see who's going to take you in and talk to you, right? What, so, like, even when you're before you lurk around, what's your first step? Like, do you do you make a phone call, send an email, saying how how do you sort of represent your own intentions in a situation like that? Uh, well, I mean, I had like the anarchist story. Rolling Stone initially didn't want to do, yeah, and but I went there anyway to Seattle. There, it started in Seattle. There's a specific event. There, there was going to be protests. And I just went there like I was very, you know, ambitious to do stories. Right. So I go there and I hung out and I just immediately found like this great character. And he happened to be a guy who was with a group of kids that that started smashing up the city. And so when that happened, my editor from Rolling Stone called me. He said, can you do the story? And I was like, I'm here. I can do it. In fact, I think I know the key guy. But I hadn't started like reporting. I was just wandering around, like I was hanging out with people. And but I happened to have just stumbled into a, a core group of kids. So you're doing that more or less on your own dime. Then, if you haven't sold it as a story, you're just kind of going around the country looking for interesting shit that's happening. Yes, but you know, shortly after that, I got onto the. I don't. I'm not doing it anymore. But where I got paid by Rolling Stone, like a yearly, a monthly fee, right? To and so you, it gave that freedom to pursue stories in that manner. Hey, this is Aaron Lammer. The quick word from our sponsors. Uh, people who know me may know that I'm something of a domain hoarder. And when you hoard a lot of domains, you need a place to manage them and to get hosting. And for that, I recommend HostGator.com. They offer premium web hosting at low, low prices. They've got .NET domains uh, powered by VersaSign, so you can get the name you actually want instead of a long string of numbers and digits and strange prefixes. They've got 24-7, 365 days a year, phone, chat, and email support. And once your site explodes and you become wildly famous, HostGator will have you covered for all that traffic with VPS and dedicated servers. Plus, if you're hosting somewhere else and you don't really like it, they'll move it for you. So what I want you to do is head over to HostGator.com, buy some hosting, get some domains, and use the coupon code LONG to get an extra 25% off and support this show. Thank you very much, HostGator.com. Here I am back with Evan Wright. When you're jumping into a situation like, say, that anarchist story where there's a really clear set of defined values and a really sort of thick, um, an insular world that has its own logic, 
do you do you study it in advance? What what kind of knowledge do you bring to the table about the people you're going to hang out with? Zero. Um, <laughs> but going back to the David Foster Wallace piece on the porn industry, uh, Big Red Sun. When I I had to reread it recently, and it was interesting reading it years later because it's brilliantly written, but he gives this critique of the industry and he essentially arrives at this where he's saying, uh, it's, it exploits women and it's bad and it's disgusting and gross. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of struck by that because I thought, actually, he doesn't say anything different. Like we kind of knew that he says it in a spectacular way through his writing, but it says the same thing. And it was also interesting because I knew that he had like a, like a normal interest in things like pornography and personal interest, personal interest. And, you know, as a writer too, and sometimes a writer, you know, what's the line? Yeah. But I remember reading it more recently thinking like, and based on some letters he wrote to me years after he wrote that piece, I was like, this is bullshit. He was writing in a sense, what he thought he should say about the industry. It's, it exploits women. Well, that's like no shit, Sherlock. And what I tried to do as a writer was different because um, I never felt I was like a very good writer. But I thought what I'll do is I'm always going to let my subjects speak for themselves. So the first story I did at Hustler was on um, uh, neo-Nazis. And I wrote the whole story just letting them talk and describing them. I didn't. And when I finished it, I was very nervous because I thought, well, I don't say here that Nazis are bad, you know, and maybe, you know, people read this and think I'm endorsing Nazis. So I took it to the uh, Anti-Defamation League and had some people there read it. And I said, do you think I should put anything in there? And they were like, they approved of the story. I wouldn't normally not vet a story. It's also published in Hustler. But is that, that the first hus uh, Hustler article that's been pre-sent to the American Defamation League? Probably. <laughs> it's also like, it's in Hellenation. Like, it's yeah. weird. I was sort of proud. There's a couple articles from Hustler that yeah. made it into like a book published by Putnam. But that experience was, I didn't know anything about them. And what I really have done ever since is when I'm with subjects, even if I do know a lot about it, I, I don't say I know about it. And um, I always say, you explain to me what you're doing. And and like with military guys, they have all their tech, their gear, right? And I actually know a lot about like gear, like military stuff, but I'd always be like, what's that thing, that round thing that looks like it goes boom? And they'd be like, well, this is a blah, blah, blah. And you learn about people. And there's a human instinct that reporters have which is when the guy says, well, this is a blah, blah, blah. You wouldn't know what this is. And the reporter wants, the human wants to say, oh, I do know what that is. But it's much better to say like, gee, what is that? That sounds, looks really scary. And then let them talk. And that's always been my thing. So I'm interested in, in, in the sort of, do you come to a conclusion? Do you, do you sum it up? And what I think you're saying is you don't, you don't need to tell people what the message that they're supposed to get out of it is. Is it important that the subjects espouse some sort of message themselves? Like if Foster Wallace leaves a reader, hey, porn is bad and exploits women. Where do you want to leave your re reader in, in something like the anarchist story? Or I'd like to talk also about generation kill and these kinds of issues. What, what, what's important that they take away from one of these stories? Well, I think the most important thing is to 
see people differently. Like with the neo-Nazis, what I found, and so yes, I try not to editorialize on the page so much, but I do try to listen to be conscious of my feelings. And when I went to hang out with these neo-Nazis, I I had seen images of them with guns and looking frightening, right? And when I got there, I started to realize these people are the most scared people I've ever met. They're terrified of black people. They're terrified of Jews. They'd never, most of them had never met a Jewish person. And then as I got their stories, like, a lot of them had psychological issues and um, overdosing on Xanax, which I could, you know, sympathize <laughs> with that. But um, so it wasn't that the story that I was going to editorialize and say the obvious, like that they're bad people. But I felt that the story was was interesting because I just trusted my reaction. Like they were not what I expected them to be. So I trusted that if I write this, the reader out there will also be as surprised as I was. And are these experiences sort of consistent? You spend X amount of time with people, you get back sort of X, you know you have enough ingredients for a story, or are they totally a new ex- exploration each time? Each time it's like reinventing the wheel. <laughs> it's just a battle, you know, mentally myself too, because I'm like, oh, I can never do it again, you know. Um, and and I don't like doing the same thing over. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm a very long, it takes me a long time to write. How did the stories that would become Rolling Stone pieces and then the book Generation Kill, what was the sort of origin of you going to Iraq? I had been to Afghanistan a few months earlier for um, Rolling Stone and did some pieces there. It was very fun and interesting. And then I came back and, um, you know, actually I'd done a profile of Shakira, a cover story in Shakira for Rolling Stone before Afghanistan. Yeah. And I was like, get me the fuck out of here, man. I can't do like a singer story because frankly, I thought Shakira sucked, man. Like her singing was so annoying and she was kind of a nice person, but I think this is the third story that someone has told on this podcast about profiling Shakira. Really? I think she may be the most talked about profile subject. Now there's something about a Shakira profile that has like changed several people's lives because it was so absurd. Yeah, she really can't sing, and I'm convinced that one of her like we'll probably get sued for libel. But I'm convinced that <laughs> one of her songs is a rip off from a Pretender song, and she was like charming and she dances and but I was like, what am I doing? Like the like we're at war. And yeah, I'm I'm doing a story on Shakira, and I was just like, get me out of here. So I go to Afghanistan, and then had a good time there it was really interesting and then um came back and then uh f- we didn't think i didn't think we were going to really invade iraq so i was in a contract negotiation with rolling stone and i was like i'll go to war just give me more money or something <laughs> and then uh months before the invasion i went to the middle east and hung out on doing stories on from boats and stuff ships as we call them did you did you have the idea that that these pieces were going to add up to sort of like a larger book length work or were you just picking them where you saw them no uh you know and probably some people who listen to this would be our writers and i was thinking as a writer like i'd had a number of people approach me and say 
uh, you should write a book about your experience at Hustler. And I just didn't want to be like the porn guy. Right. And then I did a story on skateboarders once. And they're like, do a skateboarder book. And I just kept saying no. When I got to Iraq with these Marines and then the incidents began that were part of the Rolling Stones series and then Generation Kill, I felt like this is a worthy book. We um, we recently had uh, had Gay Talese on the podcast, and he was talking about the sort of move um, during this war to embedded journalism, which wasn't didn't exist in Vietnam largely, or existed in sort of isolated pockets, but it was far less prevalent. Um, what kind of a what kind of a package did you give the army when you said, "Hey, I want to go. I want to go hang out." Well. First of all, I reject the notion that embedding didn't exist during Vietnam. <laughs> there was less control, but right. journalists were dependent on the military often for transportation and for for other travel and for their protection. And so when people romanticize and like, we were out there in the field, they generally they were with a unit. And um, Is this like a content? I, uh, I didn't realize this was a major contentious issue. Is, is this something that uh, war journalists... Uh, of different generations uh, throw back and forth at each other? No, it's just that sometimes embedding is viewed as this nefarious program, and I happen to know uh, how it began. What? Please pray tell. <laughs> um, there's, I think the military was already considering it, but I had worked for Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, and during the Afghan invasion, there was no embedding program. And Flint was looking to send a reporter there because he wanted to be reject, have his reporter rejected and get sued. And instead, the military realized that they didn't want to give him publicity, but, and they allowed him to send a reporter. But I was, he contacted, his editor contacted me first and said, would you do this? And they were explaining their, what they were trying to like get a lawsuit. And um, sorry, what would the law the lawsuit would be against the government for blocking them? Yeah, some uh, okay. I don't know what the law would be, some First Amendment type thing. Yeah, and so right after that, I Rolling Stone was like, We want you to go, but I think that at that time the military was, was seeing things like Larry Flint trying to drum up a lawsuit that and they thought we better handle this. Did you have models for the kind of war reporting you wanted to do? Well. Uh, there was A.J. Liebling, that writer I yeah. referred to. He did. We'll have, um, we'll have his ghost on the podcast soon. Yes, you should. It would want to eat a lot of food. He was a big eater, A.J. Liebling. But he he wrote some books, uh, some pieces that I'd read years before um, about the he embedded, as we would say today, with the U.S. forces in North Africa. And the other inspiration was um, Christopher Isherwood the uh, British writer, because he and um, the poet Auden went to China during um, the uh, the Sino-Japanese War in like 37 or 38. And I, I, I'm a big fan of Isherwood's writing. And I just thought it was interesting, like, so suppose like there's the Hemingway, like macho, like men go to war. Yeah. And like, here's these like two gay Englishmen, yeah. like a poet, and they were in some gnarly shit. And so... Uh, because I was never like a jock or anything, my inspirations were like the two like Englishmen traipsing around the battlefield, but doing really good work there. And so those were among my inspirations. I'm how did I mean when you say that they were your inspiration? How did you translate that um, gay spirit to your own <laughs> battlefield reporting? Well, it, it um, Liebling 
and and Isherwood, there's not a lot in common, but they're both very clear writers, very simple, unadorned writers. Liebling is very quote heavy with his sources, so that structurally that was an inspiration. For Isherwood, it was more of a spiritual guidance. Um, so when I the question of how I got to Iraq with the Marines, was, yep. I think for the original one, is that after Afghanistan, where there wasn't much shooting, um, I didn't think there was going to be a war. I, I volunteered to go for Rolling Stone to the Iraq invasion, thinking I would just get more money. And then I wound up with, um, with a unit that um, uh, through, there were 500 reporters embedded and they gave me the best unit to go with, a, a reconnaissance unit, arguably the best unit. I'm sure other reporters feel they had the best units. But they I was, tell anyone, eh, we gave you kind of a shitty unit. Right. <laughs> they, um, no, there were. Like, definitely, like, you're going to be with the unit that's guarding the airfield at blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. And, but the reason was is that in the entire invasion of Iraq, where there were some 500 journalists embedded, the vast majority were um, TV and then daily guys from and women from papers, and uh, they needed equipment and technology, electricity to run their cameras, and they're going to be filing daily, which meant that they would compromise the position of units they were with. So I was able, as a print guy, with a long lead time, and just a notebook, and then my photographer bugged out. He didn't come. Uh, and there was another journalist assigned. He bailed on, on this unit when he found out what they were doing. And so I was like alone with this unit and all I had was notebooks and a camera. And so they let me do this because they knew I wasn't going to file stories and they didn't have electricity, you know, to spare. And when you started thinking about how am I going to translate this into a series of dispatches, right? I mean, um, Rolling Stone is now on the hook to pay you a bunch of money and they want more than one story, I assume, for that money. How did you start sort of parceling out your experience and, and trying to sort of chop it up into something that told a story? Sure. And the the methodology, though, as a guy working for them was I'd already filed like a couple stories, I think, from like on a ship with doing ship stuff in the Gulf. And what I was doing in that three months is I was just always writing. So I thought maybe there'll be no war. So I was writing a story on like these underground Arab kids in Bahrain uh, that I'd met. These like kids like smoking heroin and riding skateboards and listening to death metal. So when I got with this unit, I didn't know the military was going to let me stay with these guys or with the unit or were they going to put me in a back supply truck. So I was just like frantically writing absorbing whatever I could get. And then finally, like I, I talked them into really the Marine, the, the Sergeant Colbert and these other kids are like, well, we've got a spare seat. We can take the reporter with us. So then I was like, okay, I'm in. And so it was sort of like not a long-term plan, but then once I was with them and we rolled across the border I thought, well, there's going to be no shooting, so I need to have an angle to structure my story. And I always do think about characters. And is there a conflict? Almost like a movie. And so I'm in this Humvee with these, like, 19, 20-year-olds, and I thought I could see there was a family dynamic. The sergeant was, like, the dad. Then he had an assistant leader who was, like, the, the mom. And then there was, like, the younger kids in the back. And I was, like, the retarded uncle. And so I thought, okay, it'll be, like, 
the ultimate family vacation. You know, I thought of it in these really crass terms, but I started organizing and thinking about them in that way. And I mean, it was natural. I mean, there were instances like with a mom and dad, when the sergeant was like really cross with his assistant, who was the driver, the driver would then like hit the brakes too hard and like passive aggressively like pout. Then the sergeant would have to be like, I'm sorry, I yelled at you. So it was all like it was built in. But that's I saw that structure and sort of built it from there. And then when the shooting started, it became a different story. You sort of alluded to sort of mapping out the characters. And in a situation like this, particularly being there for so long, you are a character in the story. Um, you describe in, in, in the book how people sort of reacted to you as a Rolling Stone, but much more positively to you as a hustler, former hustler reporter. And you sort of paint this portrait of yourself as a somewhat aloof, not sure what he's doing, war reporter. How do you manage that character that's Evan Wright in the book? And did that did that evolve over time, how you wanted to represent yourself, if at all, in the story? Yes. Um, well, of course, as you now know, I was in a cult when I was a child. So <laughs> I'm very good at like <laughs> compartmentalizing the personality, but that's only half true. Um, I used to write with almost no first person. And a friend of mine, Carl Taro Greenfeld, who's a writer, he was with Time magazine then, and he's written some fantastic books. But he he said after, I think after my first trip to Afghanistan, he said, you should use a little first person if you go to war because you're going to see stuff that you can't describe from the outside. And so an example would be like when a mortar bomb exploded nearby, you can feel it. And so I, I would use myself as almost like comic relief a little bit, but also to describe experiences that I can't, you know, describe from observing somebody else who's with me. And then some of the feelings, but it very, you know, I'm like <clears throat> that kind of reporting. I didn't want to be too much like, I'm really scared now. Like I didn't want it to be my adventure. So I was there as sort of like a little foil sometimes to, for the others to bounce off of. Is that something that you consciously think about when you take on a story now? Like, am I in this story or am I not in this story when you're reporting it? I I think I actually think I should put more of myself into them at times, and I've been hesitant to. Um, so I'm writing a memoir, so it's like a different experience. But it's but the you know the thing with 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 Generation Kill that goes back to the neo-Nazi story is when I was putting the book together, it was more, it was much more weighty because I was at the scene, (laughs) a lot of death. I saw a lot of people killed. I was sitting with or standing with guys I knew very well as they were shooting, sometimes women and children, and sometimes taking fire, mostly outbound killing. And, and, you know, it was also like compared to reporting on Shakira, like when when people were killed civilians especially i was i realized i was the only person there who was going to write it down so i was frantic about getting names and in the book there's a few arab the the people some of the victims i put their names in not that anyone cares but i thought at least somewhere there's a record of this right so 
it was a much more significant work than a Shakira profile or even a, a crime story that I'd done because the crime has already happened. I was there when the crime was happening. And um, so the, the one of the things about the personal reaction was as I was writing the book, I thought, what do I really want from anything I write? And basically, I just want people to like me, to think I'm competent and you know, at the time, maybe I'll get laid. I mean, that was like really like if you so, really so you went to Iraq. Well, I know it's like because like a really stupid person yeah. trying to get laid, but it's like ego, yeah. you know. Like when I first published in Rolling Stone, I ran out to get the magazine. I didn't read my article. I wanted to make sure they spelled my name correctly. So when I was doing the the war book, it I realized that I had to be as honest with my own reactions and not try to use um, fancy language, not to, not to not make it more romantic than it was, although at times it was very beautiful to like watch a, you know, bombs going off and particular types of barrages. So to capture the beauty in a way that was transgressive because you're not supposed to feel beauty, right. to capture the elation at death at times. And in particular, there's one example that I always think of, which is um, we were... I was with this group. We were coming back from one battle that had been 36 hours. And on the way back, uh, Colbert, uh, had, we were uh, being ambushed again by just a couple of guys, and Colbert had to shoot them while I was there. And when I went back and wrote the book, um, I almost wrote, like, I watch him shoot, and I feel very bad. And, like, because I wanted somebody, I don't want the person reading this to think I'm, like, a sociopath. But the truth was... When that happened, I felt absolutely nothing watching these people get killed. Now, I didn't actually see them, like, die and bleed out, but I I'm, was there when he I'm sure he shot them effectively because he had. So I thought, no, I have to write. I feel nothing. And so that was, like, I, did, well, I didn't want to editorialize and dress up my own reactions in that. And that's, like, a big thing of my writing. It's not that I think my writing is true or that I have a true perspective. But I have to be true to what I know. I, I think that very much comes through in the book um, to a point where you, know, you use the word crime uh, in describing it. And I, I, you know, I'm not not asking hey, where like crimes committed, but clearly there was a potential in observing and accurately reporting on these uh, circumstances that people, you know, people would get in trouble. Um, people would not look good that the protocols were not followed. Were you concerned with, uh, you know, the potentially volatile situation of having information that the military did not want you to have or did not want you to get out? And, you know, Rolling Stone is not exactly like a perfect mesh with the military as a publication. Were, were you concerned that you would be able to publish all of your experiences? Oh, I had no concerns. I was a little worried for some of the kids and um, that I've, I call them kids that I, that I was writing about. But the truth is, like, it's I can't even believe I have to say this, but it's reporting and you make friendships, but you have to be completely ruthless, especially. I mean, yes, if if Shakira cuts a fart in her dressing room, does the public have to know? No, but yes. if a, if a well, <laughs> she farts like a motherfucker. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. She, but with the with the military guys, they're actually employees of the government, and they've been sent into a country to kick down doors, destroy property, and shoot people. So, whatever my feelings were 
about the people that I was with, the soldiers, the actors in this, I had to write it accurately. Now, the book has a lot of color, like there's a lot of texture, like Colbert talks about his love life. And I think for some of them, that was more painful than what they did. And he had a pretty tragic love life. He's like a... a fiance left him for his best friend and they all still hung out with each other so, yes and he would go to their house and yeah. like there'd be pictures of his his ex-fiance with his best friend now married like skydiving together at romantic spots <laughs> but it wasn't i mean colbert is a very funny guy so when he told that it was with some humor but yeah so there was no censorship no threat of censorship from the military uh and, Nothing, just I had a lot of weight about the guys, like what I was doing, writing about them. And have you followed their lives since then? Yeah, yeah. I uh, am, um, I was involved, I wrote the miniseries with David Simon, and um, I ran a lot of that past the, the subjects who'd been in the book, and I've stayed in touch with them. And... Were they happy? I mean, what was their reaction when they came out? Well, um, it was pretty favorable. Like, I I don't want to, like, most of the guys really liked it. There were a few that hate it. But most of them really, I think, really liked it. What has it been like watching their lives outside of war? And I assume what are they? Most of these guys are probably 30 now. Yeah. Or the the guys who are really young in the book. They're, um, it's... I share, like, you know how Vietnam vets come back and they get angry at society? Yeah. I feel that way for the vets because they're so, like, many of them are doing well. Like, Colbert's, he's, like, a high-up, like, sergeant in the Marine Corps, like a master sergeant or something. But there's quite a few that became contractors for Blackwater and other companies, and and they have a lot of problems. I mean, Sergeant Fawcett is a guy, he um, killed himself. Um, Ryan Jeske was a, another guy in the book who was shot in Afghanistan last year. The, he didn't have problems, Jeske, but there's the ones that have come back, there's a lot of issues. Yeah. I want to talk to you about uh, a story you wrote because it's, one of, it's, one of, it's a personal favorite of mine. Um, and I guess you must have written this shortly after you got back from Iraq, um, which is Pat Dollard's War. Um, I've heard a rumor, I don't know if this is true, that is the longest story that Vanity Fair ever published. I think it's up there. I mean, I've heard that too. It was like 22, 23,000 words. They might have done one as long in the 80s at some point. And, uh, sorry, what was the original draft if it ended <laughs> up at 22 or 23,000 words? <laughs> well, it's funny because I started it at Rolling Stone. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, my editor there was like, um, it was like in 2005, I met this crazy guy who was a manager of Steven. He was Steven Soderbergh's manager, a Hollywood guy. And he was spouting all this like right wing Fox news stuff. And he kind of, he channeled like Bill O'Reilly Yeah. and I'm in his office and I was like, you know what? And he had the Fox news running and a friend introduced us and she, Sharon Waxman, a journalist. And she said, maybe Pat should be your manager for your Hollywood stuff. You'd like him. And I'm in his office. I was like, this guy's a fucking lunatic. What did, why did she think that we would get along so well? And he was spouting all this like, you know, Patton meets, meets Bill O'Reilly stuff. And I was like, Pat, to my future magazine subject, you should just go to Iraq yourself. You, you talk all this stuff, just go. Hmm. And so he ended up going 
And when he went, I, I went to my editor at Rolling Stone. I said, we should do an article on him. This Hollywood guy who's becoming a filmmaker. And Will Dana was overwhelmed at the time. He like didn't pay attention to my pitch. And you'd think like I'd won the National Magazine Award for the Iraq stuff and everything. Yeah. It just shows like the, everybody has a life. And um, he, like we've talked about it later, he's like, Evan, I just, like it came in, I don't know, I didn't pay attention. So I like pouted and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to take it to somebody else. And so I, like a year elapsed and I took it to Vanity Fair and they're like, we'll publish it. It took me two more years. And in that time, Pat Dollard went to Iraq a couple of times. Ah, I was going to say, because you have a lot of you have a lot of time in the story. Like and this... I was like, was she just like waiting because crazier shit happened each time he was about to publish it? No. And I did the I did Generation Kill, the miniseries around that yeah. and other stories like it just became this like epic project. And for people who haven't read the story, well, g give me tell tell the story in in thirty seconds for for people who haven't read it, and you really should read it. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's online on Vanity Fair site. Well, Pat Dollard was a uh, bigwig in Hollywood with an illustrious Hollywood family through his sister, who dated like one of the Kennedys, and he became turned on by ex right wing politics, and. And became a, decided to document the war. He went to Iraq. Um, but the only complication is he had a serious problem with uh, crystal meth. And so he would have these like episodes where he would freak out. And he, I, I would say the centerpiece of the story is that when he shot this astounding documentary in Iraq, yeah. came back, sold it to um, uh, Ridley Scott's company. They were going to show it on TV. And... Um, uh, and he went on a meth binge and he recut it, turning it into a porn film where he was like having sex with this girl that he picked up. And when I came to his house and he's like, I'm going to give this to the executives. It's the most monumental piece. It was like, Con you know how Kanye West gets a little crazy. It was yeah. like Kanye West crazy, like megalomania. <laughs> like this is the world has never seen this. And I turn a he turns on the TV and it's Pat like getting a blowjob from some girl in her cut with like soldiers blowing up in Iraq and like all this crazy music. Wait, are, are either of those cuts available now? No, oh. no. I can't. I, after I read the story, I was like, this has got to be leaked somewhere. Like someone's got to have gotten this tape out. If you go on YouTube, there are Pat Dollard videos and they're there. They, that version is not out there, but his war footage was pretty amazing. So from the start, you met Dollard. Dot, you, you kind of set this whole story in motion by potentially by sending, telling him he should go to Iraq. Mm -hmm. He ends up going to Iraq on three separate tours, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think it was two or three. Two or three tours. And the whole time, like what, how are you managing this relationship with him? Where are you keeping the story alive for this whole time? Well, I, I mean, I was off doing things, um, you know, I mean, I think I went to Africa to work on Generation Kill, the production there. So it would like come and go. But I had my little like a drawer with Pat Dollard files and tapes, a lot of audio with him because yeah. um, he spoke so fast. I couldn't on the meth like I couldn't take notes. It's hard to <laughs> handwrite interviews with meth addicts. The unique meth reporting challenge. Um, and then, you know, I, I went with Pat. We met Steven Soderbergh because there was something unreal. Like, how did Pat like 
know like all these like I knew his past, but it was just unreal. Like we're talking to Steven Soderbergh, who was a close friend of Pat's, but Pat has now become this like he hates George Clooney and all this stuff. So it was weird. And, you know, there's a certain point where uh, Pat dropped off a safe with a quarter million dollars at my house. Um, I don't know if I put it all in the story. I mean, there's certainly a lot of pretty pretty insane behavior and at a certain point you must i mean you must have realized why i'm dealing with a person who's having a mental breakdown of some kind did i mean did you just say i'm just going to keep i'm going to keep watching this were you like how how far could that story sort of descend down the rabbit hole and how far would you chase it yeah well i you know i went as far as i could go um i didn't go to iraq with him and pat you know another part of this is he was in his second trip to Iraq, he he had this meth binge that didn't end well. They often sometimes don't. Shocking. And I actually found a rehab that he could go to. Yeah. And he was all like, he was like all humble, like I really have a problem, powerless first step, like all this stuff. He's like, I'm gonna go. And then, um, like, uh, he was gonna go. And then he called me. He's like, guess what? This Marine Colonel emailed me. They're gonna take me in Ramadi. So instead of going to rehab, he goes to Ramadi, and he gets like blown up. I mean, seriously, two people, one or two people in the vehicle were killed. Everybody seriously injured except Pat. He's, he tapes most of the explosion. So, you know, the question is he was having mental issues, right? Um, but he was also doing things that were of the world. Like between one binge, he was on the, um, Hannity and Colm show on Fox News commenting on like whatever they commented on. And so it, it, as a journalist, is this question, well, is it just like a a person who's having problems and you're exploiting them? Or is it somebody who's in the culture doing things while he's flaming out? And he was doing both. You um, you alluded to screenwriting as a, a healthier pursuit. And uh, a lot of the reporting you've done is either um, putting yourself around crazy people or dangerous situations. Uh, where do you think that comes from? Are you a, are you a thrill seeking person? Not really. It's, it's strange. I think it's more, um, the, the war stuff was more, um, I had studied history in school as a medieval historian. So, uh, it felt significant and I thought everybody has to die better to die. Like covering a war than reviewing a porn film or something or getting hit by a bus. Debatable. <laughs> I know. It's like how stupid that I would think that. Yes, much better to die. Th- but I meant, I meant the porn film, not the bus is clearly the worst of the three. Yes. But, but uh, the the last story that I did and was um, I, I took on a book project for this gangster He was a character in the documentary Cocaine Cowboys and um, published a book that we co-authored and called American Desperado. And in the course of interviewing him, he this is a story about how I was I went to Iraq in 2007 and um, I decided, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want something like quiet and like without explosions. So um, this is like a nice transition. I'll do a book on this gangster yeah. who has stories well he tells me this story that he he helped murder some guy in miami in 1977 and he says oh but you know the crazy part is that the guy that was the hitman i did it with went to work for the cia 
And that's became the basis for the the it was part of the book I did, but I, I did a, some real journalism on that. And the the funny thing is that I, that story I spent two or three years on in the background of other things, and um, it was real. There's a guy that that allegedly, and there's a lot of evidence he did uh, work for um, uh, a Miami drug trafficker in the 70s and 80s, and then became a very senior uh, official at the CIA. His name is Rick Prado, and later on he became the vice president of Blackwater Company. So Blackwater is just like a cesspool of like every shady person from like every single war and every like. Oh, I know. And it's it's really I mean, this is a whole different interview, but it's really just a front for the Central Intelligence Agency. I mean, it does other things. It's not even really. I don't even know if we can call it a front anymore that the head of Blackwater (laughs) is a CIA was a CIA agent. It's like there's a. There's not even an illusion of separation. No, but there's enough. That's all the CIA looks for when they create these like subgroups. And but so the the funny thing is like during the time of that story, and uh, I'll emphasize that Rick Prado uh, is everything. The whole case against him was alleged, but my sources were it was actually uh, FBI agents and their files that I obtained. that he committed like or helped commit several murders but it was funny because i was like oh i'm going to get away from the dangerous stuff and then i'm doing this story on this like allegedly dangerous cia guy and i put in the story you know a little bit of first person because when i midway through these guys had been on the task force that investigated his alleged murders said you shouldn't write about this guy it's really dangerous right yeah and um so that story, I st- I'm still here today, but I stuck with it because I felt it was really important that uh, here's a guy who works for the government and we all have our fantasies about like 24 and Jack yeah. Bauer and all that stuff. But this is what it really means if these if it's true about his past. Like basically we have a drug criminal who's a very senior CIA official or was one at a critical period. So when you started, I'm assuming that the the American Desperado book, you're sort of taking, uh, his name's Roberts? John Roberts. John Roberts. You're on some level taking him at his word. It's sort of like a oral history of of himself um, that doesn't have a lot of other sources. But in the case of this uh, single that you released, what's the, it's a how... Yes, it's a Kindle single. Yes. Um, What's the title? How uh, How to Get Away with Murder in America. How to Get Away with Murder in America. So you did some pretty deep research um, to even be able to say that he allegedly was both a um, drug trafficker and CIA agent and now various other things. How is this the first time you've had to sort of get deep in the the government records and and deeply source a story like this? Yeah. Well, no, but it, it was... What's interesting is like I didn't do it through some like internet wizardry. Yeah, it was just like I met some guys who had been involved in investigating him. Yeah, and essentially they were like men and women who were like, we can tell you how to find the files because the, just like in a movie, the the files on the case, critical files, disappeared from the the records locations where they normally would be. So I I some people made copies and. Uh, um, and then I essentially went back because I was like, well, maybe it's a bullshit file. And I went back and I interviewed people that the police had interviewed and 
and verify that, oh, yeah, you this is a real file? Knowing that that this is a person who's, dan- you know, some people are warning you this is dangerous for you to pursue this story. What is the incentive for these sources to sort of participate in a story like this? Like, if you go up and say, hey, I heard you were around when that guy was doing some of those uh, mafia hits in the 70s, what... How, how do you get people to talk to you at all about a case like this? Well, um, some of, you know, people do have a sense of justice. And so there were federal agents who are continue to be outraged that they felt that their case was um, taken from them. They had, the, This CIA agent was going to be indicted in a, off, CIA officer was going to be indicted in a criminal RICO case. And that he was removed from that case. So they... There's the the law enforcement types that had this sense of outrage. So they wanted to tell their story. And then on the ground, I also interviewed, you know, when the CIA officer allegedly worked as an enforcer, I found guys that he allegedly beat up and told me that, like, yeah, he's the guy that beat me up in, like, 1978 at the Fontainebleau Hotel when he's collecting a so coke pissed debt. off about it. Yeah, they were angry. Yeah. They were like, no, it was, I mean... One of my sources was, was like, and he took my car. He was this Cuban guy. He took the keys to my, it was like a Chevelle or something. And he's like, if you see him, tell him I want my car back. So there was that level. And then there were all these women. And uh, Rick Prado had no history that I discerned of like being abusive to women. But his boss that he was the enforcer for before joining the CIA, his boss was um, horrible to women. Big surprise, you know. We glamorize like uh, Scarface and yeah. stuff, but guys that are like that are usually really horrible. So I found some of these women that had been associated with his boss. This is like years later now, and they wanted to tell me their stories. A lot of them I didn't put into the book to protect them, or didn't fit in, but uh, into the ebook. Yeah. Um, but they verified certain details of the associ- of the relationship between. Um, uh, the CIA officer and this kingpin. So, why publish this as a a ebook single rather than say like a, a news article? Well, the ebook is thirty one thousand words, and it, Vanity Fair was like only one time. <laughs> they well, they actually really wanted to publish a story that story, but in like a six thousand word form. They have yep. limitations, especially right now. It's your fault. Yes. I broke the bank. They lost all their extra pages. They're still paying off for the trees they cut down for that one. But uh, if anyone has listened this far, the how to get away with murder story is such like a yarn of all these different elements. And what I try to do in structuring, it was basically this biography of a man that I've never met. And so I thought the best way, it's not really a book, but it's like a 30,000 word piece it's very dry, too. It's uh, not as much color because when you're writing a story on someone that's all allegations, you have to be very cautious. But um, I th- I just wanted to get it out there and in, in its longer form. And um, sort of like when I would um, collected the names when I could of, of people that were shot by the U.S. military, of the Arabs that died in Iraq, I, I put them in my book because at least there's a record someday. So the Rick Prado story um, I did so that maybe someday it's it's like one record. I mean, there's a lot of journalists laboring in this field and maybe someday it will matter more to the American public. And then 
people can refer to this work. So you're um, you're about twenty years into to writing professionally. Uh, where do you go from here? What what else do you want to achieve? Well, like Kanye West, I was rewatching his BBC interview. I am a god, and um, no, uh, just uh, you know, writing is is how I experience life. Um, nothing is really real to me unless I write it down and then and then edit it into a story. Like I don't. Maybe I'm like. Uh, I have some problem, like emotionally or mentally, where I don't, maybe there's like, they're going to find out like Asperger's, there's like some weird branch. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what I felt. I don't know what I thought. I don't even know who a person is, in a sense, until I write about it. And so writing for me is just a way of understanding my experiences. And so that's why I keep doing it. What What is, what is different? Um if writing is sort of a refraction of your own experience, what is different about writing at the age you are now than when you were first reviewing um, porn films? Porn films. Well, there's not a lot of difference, actually. <laughs> um, VHS is out. <laughs> yeah, that's gone. <laughs> um, no, because I, I, I'm exactly as neurotic as I was then. And so back then... I would, I would think like, uh, and I still think this. Whenever I start something, if the last thing I did was a failure, then when I start the next thing, I, I'll tell myself, see, this is part of the trend. You're a failure. If the last thing was good, however, when I start the new thing, I'm always like, this is going to prove that that was a complete fluke, that <laughs> you're a shitty writer. And so I'm still battling those demons. Are you making any progress? None. <laughs> I mean, I just, but I do it because I have to. If I could do another profession, trust me, I would have done it. But I'm like unfit for anything else. <laughs> I think that's as good a place to end as any. Uh, anything else you want to get in there before we uh, call it to a close? No, but thanks. It was interesting talking to you. This is a great talk. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you to our editor, Lauren Kirchner, our intern, Gavin Jenkins, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our sponsors, Tiny Letter, HostGator.com, and the Arthur L. Carter Center for Literary Reportage at NYU. If you like this show, go on iTunes, write a review, tell a friend, spread the word, help us keep doing this. I'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.